In the heart of the state of the art, at the dawn of the next stage in entertainment, you found no proscenium. indeed found no proscenium the voice of everything immersive i'm your host noah nelson and welcome to episode 397 this week on the show our associate producer parker sella jumps into the host chair to talk with eric garcia creator of we build houses here and one of the co-directors of san francisco's detour a devised dance ensemble who as they put it centers the prismatic experiences of queers and people of color through bold performance and film it's a fantastic discussion i got to sit on about a show parker loved and that i wish i could have experienced and maybe we'll get lucky maybe that'll happen well maybe i'll get lucky you'll get lucky we'll all get lucky let's get lucky oh i'm the luckiest boy in the world stick around for a bit about that and because i'm going to share the missing part of last week's episode when i got some really amazing news some of you already know what it is and i share some early impressions off the cuff of the experience at the heart of it but before we get to that part uh, wait, not that part. Before we get to the part where we thank our backers, make sure to hit up the website this week as our most anticipated of 2023 part two has hit the web. In it, you'll find the 10 experiences our review crew is most looking forward to in the back half of the year. And hey, We Build Houses Here was in the one we did at the top of the year. And look how that turned out. And now it's time to thank our latest backers, Luciana Bygan and Caroline Andrew, who both jumped in with annual pledges at the $5 a month level. This kind of support keeps the project alive and a roof over my head. As little as $2 a month makes a difference to us, and $5 a month puts us on shore footing. Hitting up patreon.com slash not only powers the podcast and websites for no pro and everything immersive, it also gets you into our member-only Discord. You'll find a whole community of creators and fans there, as well as regular, real-time chats, the next one of which is on July 6th, and there's more to come. N not just more of those. I'm scheming. Scheming. If you're already a backer, don't forget to link your Patreon account to Discord and drop a review on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice and share the articles you find useful on your social media platform of choice that most anticipated is a really good candidate. And you know what? It helps immensely because the more people who find the work, our work, the more people find the immersive work, the more people who go to the shows, they fall in love with it, they become fans, the companies are able to sustain themselves, and the virtuous circle continues forever and ever. As always, uh, we are always no proscenium, except on Instagram, where we are no underscore proscenium. And now, big thanks to our sustaining backers, Samuel Mystery, Chris Woolman, Samantha Davison, Eric Shamlin, Elaine, Daryl, John Boulette, Jay Bushman, Jerome Joseph Gentis, Tom Leonetti McGuire, Kurt Collins, Hail the Visionary, Winthorne, Ryan, David Bassick, Richard Ayers, Lonnie Hanson, Lecker the Cool, the Ministry of Peculiarities, and Jan Budman. We're also on the lookout for community partners who are up for working out special deals for our backers. Hit me up at noah at noprosinium.com for details. Keep your eye out for them, everybody. All right, with that, 
Let's get into this week's interview, and I'll see you on the other side. This is Parker Sella, normally behind the scenes as the associate producer, but today I'm excited to be hosting. With us today is Eric Garcia, co-director of Detour Dance, talking about their recent production, We Build Houses Here. For anyone who's unfamiliar, Detour Dance is a devised dance theater ensemble based in San Francisco. They create immersive and site-responsive experiences that are oriented towards queer lineages and legacies, present-day complexities, and future-facing possibilities. Noah's also here today and may be jumping in from time to time. Eric, thanks for joining us this morning. Hey, Parker. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. We're really excited to get the chance to talk with you today. So to start off, for anyone who wasn't in the Bay Area and missed this piece, will you tell us a bit about We Build Houses here? Definitely. Um, yeah, the, the show is a beast for me. It was my first time creating an immersive work of this scale. Typically our company produces, as most dance companies do, it's like you get a weekend run, a two weekend run at most. And so this show was our attempt structurally to have a longer shelf life. And with that in mind, that informed a lot of um, the creative choices inside of it. And so at its core, We Built Houses Here was a shipwreck story. Um, and it takes place inside of a queer nightclub in San Francisco's South of Market District. Um, and thematically, some of like the North Stars for the work were ideas around queer sanctuary and rebuilding after wreckage and sort of the moments after disaster hits, like who do you turn to? How do you, how do you move forward? Um, and so we disguised those themes through this really fabulous glittery drag show of an immersive experience that um, featured two sets of performers or two groups of performers rather there were the castaways and there were the sirens um, and the, the the journey of the show takes you from seemingly um, simple drag show and like throws you into this dreamscape um, where the audiences are roaming around the nightclub and, and witnessing vignettes that ultimately leads to everyone back in the main space. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a, a really exciting opportunity to bring in drag artists and dancers and actors and musicians. Um, yeah. And just sort of the, the idea of like, all right, things have gone south. How do we find community? How do we create a space for ourselves in the face of this adversity? Fantastic. All of those themes were so wonderful to see uh, in the piece. So this was my first time seeing a detour show, and I was so impressed by how much there was to see. It felt like every time I turned around, there was another just beautiful scene going on behind me. So I'd like to hear a little bit about your experience and history with making this type of really full, immersive work. Totally. Yeah, I have this ongoing soundbite that I use when I talk to folks about my art practice, which is I am a queer maximalist. And I mean that through and through in both <clears throat> my aesthetics as a drag artist and as a contemporary performance maker. And also, I'm just such an overzealous art producer. Like, I have no chill when it comes to producing work. I'm like, 
I could make a quartet or I could make a 12 person show. I could do uh, this, but I'm going to multiply that by five. And um, so that was no exception. Um, We built houses here. I think there ended up being around 50 scenes or something ridiculous inside of the hour and a half show. Um, I also happen to be a type A Taurus. I'm from the Bay, so we're going to put in some astrology here, but um, (laughs) I'm a type A babe. Um, And... (laughs) uh, Part of what was exciting for me um, was being able to look at the show structurally um, through the lens of an Excel sheet. And so there was both this really long period of workshopping and just on the ground work of just, okay, like, who are these characters? Let's build some scenes. What is the basic imagery we want to play with? And then on the other side, back in my home, like, you know, outside of rehearsal time, I'm plugging in all of these scenes, all of these ideas into an Excel sheet because that's how I understand chaos. And so if you were to see this layout that I had to give to our design team and my collaborators to understand the show, um, it's basically 12 shows in one. Um, And so because there are 12 performers. And so what you were seeing every corner you turned, there was indeed a vignette for you to stumble upon. And that was very much intentional. Um, So that I feel when I've seen an experience and also created work um, that's on the immersive side of things, a peeve of mine is when I feel like I'm not, there's not abundance. Like even if I choose to stand still, I would like for there to be something um, to come my way. Not that it has to be like um, over the top or sort of overly saturated, but that's something that was definitely like in my my um, tool belt of like, if somebody wants to stand still or move very minimally, I want there to be stuff to engage with. Um, I don't want them to have a sensation of like, oh, I'm, I can clearly see something else is happening over there. So I'm going to twiddle my thumbs over here and wait. Um, so it just meant that it was many, many hours of rehearsal, um, with these collaborators. I think there was like over 300 hours of rehearsal time, um, over a year and a half. And as a director, one of the big sort of like staples in our work culture with Detour is I I have to admit to the ensemble, like I can't create everything. I'm not going to be everywhere all at once. I have to trust that you are creating your performance track. I'm here as a soundboard, vision keeper, um, but really we are, that's why we use the word device dance theater ensemble because I'm I'm very much putting power in the artist's hands because they are ultimately the ones that are going to be responsible for their track. And so that just looks like 12 people simultaneously building stuff and I'm coming in as the vision keeper to be like, all right, since you're doing this like really dramatic screaming monologue on this balcony i'm gonna put the like soft tender duet that has no words and is more movement based in the bathroom on the other side of the bar so it was that sort of like how i was coming in and every once in a while i had an opinion around like oh this scene definitely needs to exist somebody needs to take my idea that's in my brain and actualize it but for the most part it was the ensemble coming in and so by the time it got to like tech week we had over 50 scenes of content and it was just a matter of like okay so now given the space and given a general sense of arc how do we lay this out in a way that makes sense for people so yeah there's definitely there's definitely a a queer maximalism is is at play here (laughs) 
That is so fantastic. And hearing you talk about the Excel spreadsheet that exists <laughs> behind the scenes, that just, oh, that just gets my heart fluttering. I love a good spreadsheet. Um, I feel that I feel that behind every successful immersive show, there's a madman with a spreadsheet. Um, it's true. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> I just want to, I want to see all the spreadsheets. I want to see all the color coding. I love it. Um, going off of that idea of being sort of a, a vision keeper and having all of these different folks who are, are working together. Um, we looked at the website and it's, we see, I saw that no one person was listed at the, as a, the choreographer. So you had four directors, including yourself and a dozen divisor performers who were all coming from what looked to be very different, if not some overlapping um, artistic backgrounds. So how did that creation process work of melding all of these different artists together? Yeah. What a great question. Um, that has always been the case for Detour. Um, before doing immersive work, we had always been doing some version of like dance theater, which that word, if I may be honest and transparent in the safe space, that is this public pro- public podcast. Um, dance theater to me <laughs> evokes such, uh, I feel like so like, ugh, I try to like shrug that word off. I don't know what it is about that genre or that discipline that I very much fit inside of. Like if you were to, if I were to apply to a grant, I would check the dance theater box, but there's something about that, that box that feels really limiting and sort of, it's giving like early 2000s energy. And I feel like, (laughs) (laughs) and (laughs) but like I am operating in that form. And part of what that has meant for me and for my collaborator, Kat Cole, who's the co-director of the company, who was, who actually didn't co-direct this show, but was one of the, the performers um, we've always been interested in bringing in folks with wildly different backgrounds to create a show that feels to me like true devised theater where it's not um, up to one singular person to determine an aesthetic choice or scene. Um, and so that's always been in our sort of process or creative process of bringing in all sorts of folks. And there are definitely designated folks like I'm a horrible writer. That is not in my skill set. So I always bring in a playwright. Um, I happen to have a dance background. That's my training. So I often contribute choreographically or if not choreographically, I offer like an eye towards movement that somebody else creates to help shape it. Um, so this project was no exception and again just magnified um i i felt very daunted by the task of creating an hour and a half immersive show in a two-story nightclub um and what i identified early on was i needed a, a team of artists like part of part of the casting obviously is like okay who in the ensemble what qualities in those artists do i need to feel supported as a director um so it feels like it's very um there's like a two-way dynamic that it's not just me providing as the director and you have to execute. It was very much like who in this room is going to feed me as well and sort of like challenge me and inspire me and, and provoke me. Um, so the, the, the ensemble, like I said, it, the, the skill set is wildly ranging and also it's just hilarious to, I mean, I wish you could peer into our green room, like leading up to the show, like the dancers, the quote unquote dancers that have, more sort of like technical dance training their two and a half hours leading up to the show looked so different than the drag artists <laughs> leading up to the show and the actors and the singers and the musicians doing their vocal warm-ups while the drag artists spent like two hours getting in makeup and then I was like hey you should set your props so like oh right 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 thanks yeah <laughs> like it was just a totally different um beautiful complimentary uh 
culture. Um, and then from the design standpoint or from the sort of um, the production standpoint there early on, I was like, okay, uh, I am a pretty clear director. I'd say like, I have really clear aesthetics and I have a way of working now after 15 years um, that feels pretty good and clear to me. But like I said, there's, it just felt like so daunting to have to hold all of this stuff. So I brought on three contributing directors, again, each with pretty um, varying skill sets. One of them primarily works in the drag scene here in the city. They are also like a brilliant performance maker on the theatrical side of things, um, tend to be on the more like fringe experimental um, performance art. Um, I'm so inspired by the work that they do. Every time I see the work, I'm like, how did you, like that lived in your brain somewhere and now I'm sitting here watching it and I feel so grateful <laughs> to be a part of the audience. Um, and then the other two directors, contributing directors, definitely come from the dance world. Um, one um, in the more sort of like contemporary ballet world and then one in the more contemporary dance field. Um, and so through the four of us early, early on in the process, I would come in and be like, okay, we're all going to divvy up rehearsal time. So I would lead some, and then the three of them would have their own rehearsals. And then as we got closer and closer to the show, we considered the way we, the, the language we started using was like, it was more like gift giving. So the directors were there not to quote unquote craft the show or like direct it, but like offer me nuggets so that they eventually would step away from the process. And they were like, here, here's what I created with the 12 people or eight people, whoever was available. And it's your job, Eric, to now take what we've made and adapt it to fit into this one cohesive vision. And so just by virtue of them having different skill sets, we were able to just like, the, the, the roster of scenes are just like, they range from like lip sync to like big, bombastic contemporary dance to like really dramatic theatrical monologues to like visual or like um structural play with like fine art stuff so it just it has a, a inherently just this like really dynamic um creative workflow how no noah here hopping in for a second you mentioned like a year and a half you mentioned 300 hours worth of rehearsal that is a, a luxurious amount of time and give you give you the time to structure the, the the workflow this way how did you get that much time to, to to build out a piece was yeah yeah that's a great question that is not often the case for our shows but because for anybody I mean, shows yeah really. i mean yeah. truly yeah it's 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 real especially in the bay i mean the bay is so expensive to be renting space and to be you know it's just it's it's a whole it's a whole thing over here um but um i feel um fortunate that one of the one of the perks to this show, not one of the perks. What am I saying? Um, it's not a perk, but I fortunately have a really great relationship with Oasis um, because I work as a drag artist outside of running Detour. Like that is very much a part of my world. It's not like a costume I put on for the show. Like when the night when the sun goes down, I become Chironomi <laughs> and I host drag performances and do all sorts of stuff around the city. Um, and so Oasis was already one of my creative homes. And so when I reached out to them about producing the show, they were like, 
okay like they have never they're so typically just a nightclub and they were like okay like they they were trying to understand what i was explaining to them i was like have you seen sleep no more and they were like i've heard of it i was like cool 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 so it's gonna be kind of like a nightclub but it's gonna be really contained um and so through those conversations i was like so what's gonna require this piece to happen is that we're, we're gonna need access to your space and i know for a fact that you guys are not open Monday through Friday during the day. <laughs> so if you are down, like we can build a, a show in your space. And they offered us rehearsal time in there for a small fee, right? It wasn't a, a they weren't presenting us, but um, we were able to rehearse in the nightclub when it was not um, functioning nightclub. And the reality behind all of this producing is that we get our, most of our money through grants and, and, and fundraising. Um, and so it, it was just dedicating even more time front loading our creative process. So like two and a half years ago, deciding, okay, I want to do this project. And so that means I'm going to take a year to grant write and fundraise and get individual donations. And so we were able to do that. And it, and it felt like a very exciting new thing happening in San Francisco. And so I think that's the response that we saw from funders and donors are like, yeah, we totally want to invest in this like queer led immersive show in this non-traditional theatrical venue. Like that sounds really exciting for a long, relatively long run for a dance company. So that just, that allowed us to be able to pay our performers for a year and a half and to rehearse. And granted there was like, um, it's not like we were rehearsing like a full-time company, right? It was just like a very piecemeal schedule, but yeah. It's so fantastic to hear about Oasis being open to this type of work and, you know, to hear something that like, oh, we haven't, we're not familiar with this, but yeah, let's give it a try. Let's all jump in together. Um, and it it just felt like as, a, as an audience member coming into the space, I'd never been to Oasis before, but it immediately felt like just the perfect spot for this show. You could really tell that um, the show had sort of been born and grown in this fantastic non-traditional space. Yeah, it's worth mentioning too, like because it is a nightclub, that after every single show we had, we had 30 minutes to load out and they would turn into a nightclub. So one of the other creative challenges that we had to face was we had to make like an accordion style show where I ha I got a van and a parking garage and the entire show, costumes, set, props, all lived in that van. We'd go in, unload it into the club, do the show, and then 30 minutes to like strike all of that stuff and put it away. So it was it was very much created inside of this club and also designed to be like, all right, it's very portable. We're going in and we're going out because it needs to, you know, a, 300 people are about to walk in and party. So to your point around like the settling in Oasis already has this like really beautiful aesthetic inside of it. Like it, it was working in our favor, especially for this like shipwreck um, sort of narrative and imagery. It was all sort of like all baked into it and let alone the name Oasis. I mean, give me a break. Give me a break. <laughs> it's so perfect. <laughs> So you mentioned before that San Francisco is obviously very cost prohibitive, especially for doing work like this that maybe doesn't have the um, the history behind it of, you know, a people experiencing it. Um, we do have some history of immersive here, but the general audience may not be as experienced attending immersive as an audience you might find in like New York or Denver or London, somewhere like that. 
were there any fears or concerns about how the audience would interact with the show, interact with the space? Um, what what thought did you put into that um, before inviting in your cast audience? Oh, yeah. I mean, that was one of the bigger things I was thinking about when, when deciding to move forward with this project. Um, and as you saw in the show, which I'm so glad that you were able to come a couple of times, um, part of the design of the show is it's sort of like equal parts okay what is the story that we want to tell or what's the what's the sort of like loose narrative that we want to offer folks so that that's like one part of it and then the other part of the show to me as a as a director is like how do you design an experience for people to learn the rules and like thaw like they're walking in from south of market which is a very exciting neighborhood. It's a very lovely place to just be walking off the street <laughs> into the club. One word. <laughs> it's like it's giving it's always been dynamic. That way. <laughs> it's always been that way. I, I can tell, as a '90s kid, it's always yeah. been like that. We, we love Soma. We love Soma, and um, so it just takes a second for folks to be like, "Okay, I'm arriving into this space," um, and then the 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 big ask of choose your own adventure is like you need to work up to get there. So I consider the first 45 minutes of the show um, designed to create thresholds for audiences to understand the logic of the world so that they are given the time and space to be in their head, to be in their feelings and emotions of like, Oh God, I'm being asked to like, move my body or god we're getting separated now or okay this drag queen is like putting her hand out at me i think i'm gonna take her hand like it was like all of these little sort of like micro trainings and like hey just i'm gonna give you the space and time for you to like be in your head so that the experience isn't clouded like i i would be really upset if i spent all of this time crafting theatrical dramaturgical material that was then overshadowed by the fact that people are like in their brains or i'm like oh god that performer's looking at me or oh god i'm in someone's way or do i move oh god like that's not the goal the goal is for people to receive and be a part of this experience and so it just takes that much more of the design um to allow people to to settle in and to understand because ultimately people want to be good audiences. I never, I never, I don't make yeah. the assumption that audiences want to misbehave. I don't make the assumption that people don't want to understand or be um, sort of like problematic. They just want to be good. And oftentimes what that looks like physically is like still quiet and could like reserved because they don't want to be in the way. They don't want to like cause a scene that, you know, whatever it is. And so it just, um, that was very much on on my brain as we were creating this work, um, and it was it's really interesting. Also, another dynamic that I was really aware of and sort of tried to use to my advantage was the fact that we're in a nightclub. Um, that that place already has a culture. It already has a designated way of socializing and being that we is not afforded to us in maybe theater venues for example um where there is a really like clear socialized way of going in and experiencing art the nightclub is a totally different and um really dynamic often unruly um and in and in a way that i am really drawn to especially in drag shows where there's like a really present affirming loud obnoxiously loud audience that's like tipping and screaming 
in the way there's alcohol it's exciting so like that sort of culture felt really really special to me and I did not want to create a work inside of a queer nightclub that didn't tap into that but I also didn't want to create a thing where it's like the you know like when grandmas at weddings are like dance child dance and you're like I don't want to dance but they're like you're right you're like I don't want to dance but they're making you you know so it's like I don't want that like I didn't want people to come into the nightclub to be like all right I want you to scream for me now clap for me be loud be annoying like I like that's just too big of an ask um especially when people are like oh I bought a ticket to an immersive theater show so there's already Mm -hmm. this sort of like different air to the room um so yeah very much considering audience experience as one of the main components of the work um and we used drag to our advantage to get people, because there's nothing like a drag queen telling you what to do. Like, right. <laughs> the, the efficacy and the, like, the the quickness that you, and the immediacy of, like, being like, hey, like, these are the rules. Listen up now. Uh, be good. Like, everyone's like, yes, ma'am. <laughs> like, <it's fair. laughs> like, you get away with a lot, which is really great. It was, it was so effective. And you know, as someone who does see quite a few immersive shows, like whenever I'm walking into a company that I haven't seen work of theirs before, you know, I'm a little, I'm a little apprehensive. Like, do I, I mean, not to be blunt about it, like, do they know what they're doing? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it was during the house rules where I believe it was you up on stage just with a microphone that I was like, oh, these folks know what they're doing. The way that that the whole cast taught the audience what was an acceptable level of interaction was a masterclass. I thought there was a moment where a performer just reached out their hand to me and that was all that they did. They didn't come towards me. They didn't like say, come grab my hand. All they did was reach out their hand to me. And it took me a minute to be like, should I, should I do it? Should I go for it? And I did it. And I was so glad that in that moment I said yes, because then I saw other performers reaching out their hand to other audience members. And I just felt the room understand, oh, this is how they want us to interact. This is how we will enjoy this show. Um, And that was such a magical moment of feeling the audience learn together and just dive in. Yeah, that's so real. I feel like it's so funny to be um, creating this type of work because for so long we're practicing with ghosts and we're practicing (laughs) with like nobody. And it's, it's this like really bizarre thing of like, okay, this show is dependent on 75 to 80 people being here and navigating their bodies and, and, perhaps looping them in and bringing them into the scene and so a lot of that learning that you saw was happening real time like we were just like okay like this is how this is gonna go and it's also like what you just said also reminds me of the like the phenomenon of herd mentality like when one person does one thing and multiple people see it everyone's like okay there's I'm gonna do that now there was this one really hilarious moment to me in the show at the very 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 end when the sirens the like they're decked out in this like really um it's definitely not giving traditional drag like in the way that it's like really gender specific it wasn't like really feminized or masculinized it was like very like alien drag it was super super bizarre um beautifully strange makeup and really like over-the-top costuming um they lead the castaways up onto the to the main club stage with this like huge blinding white light and they build a little lighthouse Um, out of these boxes that had been used throughout the whole show and one audience member so the castaways are it's it's giving like a little bit of like not that this was the intention but it definitely was like ufo abduction energy like the castaways (laughs) following the sirens into the white light 
very dramatic. Um, but that, well, there was one audience member one night that like felt compelled to like also follow. Like they were like, we're all doing this. And then all of a sudden, 75 people just start walking towards the light. And I was oh in the back. Goodness. I was in the back laughing. So like church, <laughs> church giggles. I was like, what is, this is horrifying. Like what, what have I done? <laughs> like what's happening in this club right now? But it was just one of those examples of like when one person does something, it gives permission for other folks to partake, which is so beautiful. Amazing. Sort of on the other side of that, one thing I want to make sure um, to ask about is the one-on-ones. So I, I saw I saw this I saw the show twice, and the first time I was just in the big group scenes, and so I got to sort of see the big overarching um, sort of narrative and the scenes, and then. The second time I got three one-on-ones all back to back, which was amazing. I had no idea how I did it, um, but just an incredible experience. I'm so curious to know how you approached designing the one-on-one encounters and sort of what does a one-on-one or a, a very small group encounter give you that a larger group scene maybe doesn't. Yeah. Oh man. Um, the one-on-one scenes in this show to me felt really, really fun because again, it taps, there's this thing that happens in drag performance where I, I, when I'm on stage, it is like, it's almost like non-illusory theater where like, I'm looking at you and you're looking at me and I'm as the performer, we are in an agreement. We, I'm like, I'm asking for your affirmation. I'm asking for your love. I will give you more if you give me more. It's sort of like the antithesis of what contemporary performance asks of people. And so there's something inherent in that dynamic that just feels really rich and beautiful and present and um, approachable. Um, and what happens in immersive theater is that I think why so many people are so drawn to this form is because it is, like I said, this like really immediate emergent sensation of like, wow, I'm being witnessed and seen. And I actually am responsible for contributing to a real life dynamic right now that, that what often performance tries to do outside of immersive theater is like, we're going to hope that the dance that we crafted or the script that we wrote evokes emotion in people. Like that's, typically like a goal like that there's an experience that moves people in some direction um and in my experience more often than not when we leave a show we're like huh i dozed off i was sitting down for too long i had (laughs) tea like it's very rare that you're like holy cow that was transformative not to not to imply that that is not possible like it is very possible but it's just that it's just really challenging to do. And so immersive theater, I think why it is so popular and why it is so exciting. And so there's just like the veil of like real life and performance is very, very thin. And that is exciting for people, for people seeking that type of experience. Um, so yeah, one-on-ones in this show had that, the, the perk to the, like being really close to a person who is dolled up in drag, like that in and of itself, even to me, I'm a drag performer. And if I'm not in drag and I'm with a drag queen or a drag king, I get excited. It's like, it's so fun and like um, stimulating to be in front of somebody that's like five feet taller than you that has like insane makeup and they're looking at you right in the eyes and smiling. Yes. You have you have no choice but to be like, yes, like, <laughs> I, I will you do whatever. You yes, it's like a hundred percent. Yes. So a lot of the, the one-on-ones were like a mix of like, I'm going to do a lip sync just for you, or we're going to take these ideas of like these really, really basic ideas of like, what would being stranded on an island actually be like? And that's where we used a lot of the, like the narrative 
um, to our favor of like those really simple questions that you would ask someone like at a campfire of like, what is that one thing you would bring on a deserted island? And so we were able to like tap into some of these more like tender and specific questions that are a little harder to do for a larger crowd or like a, a group setting because it wouldn't, it wouldn't land as concretely, I think. You, when you were talking just then, it made me think about the difference between uh, a performance and you, you mentioned, you know, you go to a dance performance and they're trying to evoke an emotion, uh-huh. right? Like through, through the witnessing of the acts of the performers, you know, interacting with each other or, or interacting with the space, we're invited to sort of project our, our, our feelings onto that or, or have our feelings, you know, inflamed. In the moment of the connection between the performer and the audience member, it's a shared experience mm-hmm. between those two. And, and that is the categorical difference totally. in, in, in immersive is that uh, it's, it, it, it's, it's that sharing uh, which creates a, a real vulnerability for both the performer and the audience member, even, even in the context of like a fictional moment, mm-hmm. everyone's being real in a fictional moment, which is, performers know that right that's 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 Mm -hmm. the ultimate goal right i'm gonna be real in this fake thing Mm -hmm. audience members don't necessarily get to experience that all the time and that's one of the things that's so magical about it totally and that's also like when when designing a one-on-one specifically there's like several things that you have to consider and i think that's why they are so impressive and so like sought out is that the performer is tasked with several things they have a script or choreography that they have to execute and hit by certain cues like in the show we had like seagulls in our soundtrack to signal like okay like wrap it up move on to the next thing like a, fo- <laughs> like a foghorn but like so they're like they're tapping into cueing they're tapping into the script and their choreography they're also tapping into this stranger who is like responding in their own way and they also have to like improvise if a person does one thing they have to like actually respond to the thing that's happening because how how alarming and disrupting or like uh, um disturbing would it be if like you have your scene and then an audience member says one thing and you're like not ready to react to it and so you just like carry on like you that's just like feels like a disservice to the experience and so part of the one-on-one building is like how do you create enough of a container and enough of a like a roadmap but also train the performer to be like okay you this is where the stuff gets responsive. And if it starts to get too unruly, these are the tools and the techniques to bring it back in, which is that, that to me is really interesting work as a director. Like if you wanted me to choreograph an hour long dance show that I could do that if you wanted, but to me that the really exciting craft is that type of crafting, that type of um, like level of detail and nuance, um, which feels really special and a different type of art. Mm -hmm. especially with performers who might be new to immersive or not have the sort of skills or vocabulary um, to handle audience interaction that can't be perfectly planned out. And I think that's Mm -hmm. where drag performers have such a, such a leg up over um, someone who has only done, you know, very traditional theater or very traditional dance. You, you, like you were saying before, they have that sort of built in interaction and an ability to work off of an audience in sort of whatever situation um, gets thrown at them by whoever's there that night. Totally. There were, there were so many people. I, it was, it was a shock to me at how often this happened, but there were 
if not one-on-ones, like four-on-ones, it would be like four performers to one, or sorry, four audience members to one performer. There, there were so many scenes where there were, um, a uh, drag performer doing a lip sync, for example, to a popular song like Ship to Wreck by Florence and the Machine or like a cover of I Will Survive or like, SOS by Portishead. Like there was like all of these really um, pop- popular songs and it was, or SOS by ABBA, we had that in there too. Um, people were bawling, people were crying. It was not my intention to like, I was like, ah, yes, I'm going to use SOS by ABBA to make people cry. Like, that was so far from my reality or so far from my from, from my from my expectation. In my head, I'm like, yes, crescendo. It's so, it's so gay to have an ABBA song in here. And, like, we're all going to do something to it. Like, that will be a fun peak in the show. But then it was just so funny to have people just, like, bawling and crying during it. And I was like, and I would, like, tuck. To people after I was like what's going on hun they're like I don't know why I'm crying right now but I'm crying and I was like work I love that for you and to have like a drag performer there was there's a scene where there's like a VIP room it's like all these like red lush couches and it's really dark and it's sort of like off in the corner and one audience or one to four audience members are plucked and they're brought in there and then four drag performers to one audience member or four audience members are sat down and the performers sit on the on the uh, opposite side of them and they're just doing a deadpan lip sync to this really dramatic song and 10 out of 10 times the audience members would just cry like it was this like they would just be like i'm faced with this like really simple scene and this really simple thing i'm not being challenged in any way other than just like having to sit here and receive a lip sync and for some reason that equation led to tears that led to like people being like i don't know what's happening in my body but i'm feeling feelings all of a sudden this sounds like you know catharsis going on and virgilia in unexpected moments and in time and and maybe and this is a question i wanted to make sure we got in before we lost our time with you i'm wondering how much that might be the moment we're in culturally mm-hmm. where the, the queer community and, and particularly the drag community is under political siege mm-hmm. across the nation San Francisco has long been a bastion for generations now. It's It's been one of the core homes of, of both of those communities. What does it mean to be making this show about places of refuge for the drag community, for the queer community in this particular political moment? And, and do you think this show could exist anywhere but San Francisco right now? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the... The whole show really exists because of that very conundrum, that very sad reality. Um, I would be lying if that was not part of why the show was built. Um, And I'm somebody who is uh, fortunate to be able to be producing work in San Francisco. I've been doing this for 15 years. And so I feel as somebody who's working in the drag scene as somebody who is living and breathing being queer a hundred percent of my time um a really clear um yeah space to take up and like you said this this work points to places of refuge and queer sanctuary and so what place is better than one of our living sanctuaries which is a nightclub if you ask any queer 
where do you, like where's a guaranteed place that you will find other queers? It's a queer nightclub. And what I'm interested in also is like what else can exist outside of sort of like spaces that are centered around alcohol or, you know, like that sort of like party scene, which is fabulous. And it's like a lot of jobs for folks, but it is, it is one of the places that we find refuge and one of the places that we like, we will find other people. Yeah. And to pull out, to zoom out a bit. Yeah. It's like, what is the number? It's like over 500 anti-trans and queer legislation out right now. I mean, it is, it is no joke. It's so deeply upsetting to be um, confronting that daily. It's, it's really a, a crisis. Um, and so to me, that this show felt like a beautiful way to, to propose possibility. I feel like when I'm, when I'm thinking about my work, oftentimes as queers, um, and in, in, and in my case as a queer Latinx artist, it's like, make your work about your oppression, right? Like tell the story of your oppression. Um, and if you're doing that, live your life, do your thing. Like we want to hear that. It's, it's very real. I'm in a place now where I'm like, okay, yeah, there is, we are facing a lot of adversity, violence, um, intensity. And so I position myself in a place of like, how can I hold that and let that sit next to joy and hope and possibility? Like, what would it look like to not deny the pain that we're experiencing as a community? Um, And also put it through uh, a prismatic lens and be like, what is possible? Like, how do we move through this thing? It's a, on a meta level, that's what the show is offering, right? Like the show is about a shipwreck, but it's not really about a shipwreck kids. Like we're talking about like, really, <laughs> like it, you know, the, sh- the metaphorical shipwreck. So it's like the show is proposing, like how can we hold these things together and face towards something that is not necessarily a solution, but like, what are what are some possibilities that we can imagine and lean into and something that's a little more expansive than like, yeah, it's really tragic out there for queers, um, period. Like that, that doesn't give me much hope. Um, and so, yeah, it, there, there's just like a really clear um, position I take. And as far as this show living in San Francisco, I mean, I feel like this city is, is one of the like, hubs when you when you ask any queer anywhere it's like what's one of the gayest places in in town it's like yeah san francisco yeah absolutely right like it's very much that but also like you look at what's happening everywhere else and it's like there are tons of little queers and nooks and crannies all over the place and so i like there is a fantasy there is a reality that like this show like what would it be to take this show and place it in a nightclub in like the rural south like (laughs) what would happen like how how impactful would that be for those queers in that space to be like okay yeah like I don't need to tell them that shit sucks. Like the world is not in their favor. I don't need to tell them that, but how powerful is it to like provide them an experience to be like, look at this like beautiful, expansive, creative world we've created for you that is centering your experience visually overtly queer and points to something that's like hopeful and optimistic. Like that is something that we're not getting often. So that feels like a really clear position I'm taking as an artist. Awesome. I think hopefully it's clear by now that I had such an incredible time at We Build Houses here. I saw it twice. I could have easily seen it half a dozen more times. Um, I chatted with some folks in the audience afterward who had in fact come back five, six times. Um, And I would definitely happily see this show uh, anytime again in the future. 
speaking of that, there have been a couple of rumors floating around that maybe we haven't seen the last of We Build Houses here. So I would love to ask you, what's next for the show? What's next for Detour in general? Um, yeah, that's the plan. That's the fantasy. So um, I think what we felt and received from folks that came to the show was where have you been? Like, we want more. And that feels very, yes. satisfi- <laughs> feels very satisfying as a producer and as a director. And so the idea is, um, which feels um, like a new step for my company, is we're, we're in the process of securing funds and fundraising to do a remount next year. And ideally, um, it would be for a longer shelf life. We're hoping, I, you know, we're still a small but mighty team and our longer shelf life that we're imagining, like we're putting it out into the universe, is like, what would a three month run look like at this venue? What would a four month run look like with this venue? What would like multiple casts look like just, you know, as sustainability Ooh. and trying to get more more folks in the door. Um, so that's something that we're playing with. Um, in, in the larger picture, I would love, I mean, part of our process, we brought in Janine Willett from Third Rail and, and she came in sort of midway through our process and, and talked to us about her processes and how they create work. And, and it was really, really informative. And I, I owe a lot to her. She was really generous with the information that um, she has as one of the directors of this of immersive company. And it's like, what would it take to, if it's not We Build Houses here, what would it take to build a show here in San Francisco that would become a staple show here, if not for a long time, at least for like a year or two, like what would it look like to have that here in the city? That feels like a really um, exciting place to be leaning into rather than like producing a new work every year for a weekend. Like that to me is like tired and exhausting. Um, So yeah, so that's sort of like maybe, maybe we're coming back next year. Hopefully it's going to be springtime um, depending on how fundraising goes, but it's, it's highly likely that it will happen. I'll just say that. <laughs> Fingers and toes crossed. And <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Let, let us know when you're kicking that process off so we can herald it across the country because, yes. you know, it was, it was no, it, it was not a fluke that we put your show mm-hmm. on our 10 most anticipated because of the, the people you had been working with, like we, we noted that you had you worked with Third Rail, and just the the melding of subject matter to space and city just felt like the absolute right thing to be happening in San Francisco at this moment in time. And you know, it was a it was a relief when Parker came back and said, the "Show is really good." <laughs> so like, I was like, "Oh, thank yes. God!" <laughs> you know, we, were, we were like sight unseen. It was like there was just something about the vibe. I was like, "Oh, this feels like the right the right thing, and particularly the right thing for San Francisco." And and maybe maybe it is like the kid who grew up in the Bay, the '90s kid in me, wanting wanting to see Bay culture. Uh, get down to its homespun roots and and not just be whatever is currently being consumed by the uh, the Silicon Valley set, right? Um, so oh. just just you know like we need their money, but you know like uh, it's really like we also want them to to learn their place in the world. Yeah, totally. Um, no and 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 yeah, like it's been lovely seeing this this show the show blow up in the, in the right way and desperately want to see it come back. So I can see it. And so that a lot of the folks in LA and New York and in Denver can, can make pilgrimage and, and, and see what happens when the, the Bay gets to do the base thing. 
Yeah, I would love for nothing more. It's a very exciting uh, show for sure. And there's lots of glitter and drag queens. Like, who doesn't love that? I mean, let's right? let's get real. <laughs> Everyone needs a little more of that. Right? Eric, before we go today, um, where can people find more information about you, about Detour, um, if we want to follow you across the internet? Yeah, the simplest answer is go to detourdance.com. And there we have a ton of events coming up. Um, we do like drag cabarets. We have other shows that we're planning, um, smaller, um, some big ones. We might be doing something at the Castro Theater. Um, so yeah, lot, lots of things bubbling up, but detourdance.com um, is the place to go. Once again, I want to thank Eric Garcia for being our guest on the show this week and Parker Sella for hopping in the host chair so we could have an informed discussion and not just me asking really generic questions. Um, I am indeed hoping that uh, We Build Houses Here comes back. San Francisco could use some good homegrown, long-running immersive, and uh, this sounds like the perfect show for the bay uh check out what they do at detour dance uh you can find that in the show notes uh click click away click away click away um hey you know last week uh there you found that there was this hole in the 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 episode uh a part of the interview uh because someone called and i had to go take the call and then i promised you that i'd play that for you i'm going I'm going to play that for you now. Um, I think I'll fill in the context afterwards. I'll just say this. I curse a lot in the next <laughs> segment. You get you get to hear the, the non-microphoned version of me in, in a certain way. He's salty. Um, and uh, but when he when surprised and delighted, um, what can I say? I'm a nineties boy. Um, let's, let's just, let's just play this. Just know that, that the setup for this is that, uh, Graham Wetterhahn of After Hours Theater Company, uh, had, uh, and I were, 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 were supposed to have dinner on a Wednesday. We were recording on a, on a Tuesday morning. It's supposed to be dinner on a Wednesday. My hazy brain, I couldn't remember if it was Tuesday or Wednesday. And I, if I double book something, yada, yada. So I get a call from Graham during the, during the recording. Uh, and then, and then another call hard upon. Uh, and, and on the second call, I realized that something might be up. Go ahead. Actually, I'll just, I'll, I mean, you keep on going. Uh, no, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Go do your thing. I think this, I think this might be Star Cruiser related. This may go button. Hey, uh, what's up? Uh, I'm actually recording a podcast right now, but then I re- but I realized there might be an emergency. What's up? Yeah. Before 10 days from now? Oh, my God. Okay. Uh, hey, uh, so what, wait, what day, what, what days are this? 24th. Okay. Um, so we're going to have to figure out how I'm flying. We'll do that a little bit later. Um, but yeah, sounds good. Um, okay. I guess we're, I guess we're fucking doing this. Um, 
Well, I'm I'm recording I'm recording the podcast right now, and so yeah, I'm a little sh- I'm a little shell. No, no, it's okay. It's I'm a little I am a little shell shocked. Uh, plus, also I just got to reach out. I got to bar. I got to look. I got to I got to find someone to borrow some money from to do the flight thing. So like, let's figure out. Um, let's figure out uh, tonight. I'll I'll look into that. Okay, cool. Um, we're fucking doing this. Um, we're we're fucking doing this. All right, good. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm just b- borrowing money left and right. It's all good. Uh, okay, cool. May the force be with you, Graham. Thank you for staying on this. Uh, and Catherine, I'll see you. Uh, I'll see you in the stars. Oh, Catherine, how'd you do? How'd you score it? Oh my god, fantastic! All right, brilliant. Holy shit! Okay. Holy shit. Okay, good. All right. I'll, 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 very, very, very good. That's, that's fantastic. Okay, cool. And then I'll, I'll hit up, uh, I'll hit up Kalum who promised and I'll be like, Hey, remember when you said, uh, so yeah, that's good. That's good. All right. May the force be with you all. I think I may go cry now. So, uh, <laughs> all right. All right. Okay. All right. Bye. <laughs> I'm going to Star Cruiser. Um, you are. I, I. That's what that when when they called the second time is when I realized I better answer because that was a possibility. Uh, I'm going to Star Cruiser and I'm going to Star Cruiser in like two weeks. In ten days, ten days Jesus from now, Christ. I'm going to be in Florida. Uh, I got to figure out how. Um, and and they're they're taking me. Um, and so yeah, t- ten days from now, I'm I'm going to be, I'm, I'm going to be in space. So, uh, yeah, got to figure that one out. So that one, again, bonus material for the pod. Um, <laughs> we'll do that afterwards. We'll, we'll cut that part out and then think, what the fuck were we talking about? Um, um, we were talking about, um, oh, I was, I was ranting about the Ars Memoria. Uh, so. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah yes. yes. Memory palace. Yes. Yeah, so, so. so you know so memory palace no um uh just listening back to that and 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 i tried as best as i could to sort of bring up uh graham and Catherine's part of of the call but of course this i didn't patch them in to the the system or anything because this wasn't pre-planned um in case you missed any of it basically what it came down to was this uh graham and Catherine in secret so so let me be specific. Um, on the day that Star Cruiser was announced to be closing, Graham reached out to me and said, hey, I don't think that Michaela, that's his girlfriend, uh, would want to go with me. Uh, I really want to go. How about I take you to Star Cruiser? Right. Like, I'll, I'll cover you, which is which is incredible, which is incredible. Graham, if you don't know, he's uh, he's the producer of. Uh, the Los Angeles Immersive Invitational, amongst a lot of other shows. He was a producer on uh, The Tempest uh, experience here in L.A. recently. Uh, they, they did, After Hours Theater Company, his company did a production of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest that had an immersive intro to it. Uh, that's when I first got to know him. And, uh, you know, he's just he's become a very good friend over the past couple of years. And, uh, and <laughs> obvious, like, he's a, an amazing friend to have. Um, and so, so out of the blue, uh, and then, 
um, when when the tickets went on sale, uh, when when the last of the, the the batch went on sale, it sold out so quick. We all know that you went out in like four hours, and so uh, we we had gotten some tips to go through a travel agent, and they hadn't reached back and blah blah. blah. Anyway, point is this. On on two two Mondays ago, I'm losing sense of time because this literally this this time last week when I'm recording this, I was going to LAX. Uh, so it was the the Monday the Monday before last. I was at uh, the 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 Peabody Award ceremony uh, for the interactives here in LA, and I was sitting at a table to Jay Bushman, and Jay was telling me uh, behind the scenes stories of what he had learned about Star Cruiser, uh, and talking about some folks we know who had worked on it, who who I didn't know. Th- the capacity which they worked at on it. And, and I, for the first time I got really sad um, because I had resigned myself to the fact that I wasn't going to go do this thing, despite the fact that, you know, uh, I sort of have this career. <laughs> We've only done like 397 episodes of a podcast about immersive experiences. I only happen to be a gigantic star Wars fan. Um, and um, and, and, and it just, it wasn't, it wasn't the right time. I was, I was going to be saving up money for the next couple of years. I was going to go for my 50th birthday. I wanted to go with friends. I wanted to, I wanted to make a little thing of it, or maybe we would do like a no proke thing. I don't know. We, we, there were things in the back of my head, but we had to get through the summit first because we'd only been doing, trying to do the summit for a couple of years. And Jay was telling me, you know, about who had worked on it, that, that I think I had heard, but like I hadn't processed and, and I, I got, like I said, I just started to get sad. And then, you know, the next morning, uh, it was podcast time because Kurt's in Lisbon and, you know, we're podcasting in the morning. And like I mentioned, I I got a call from Graham and I was supposed to be Graham the next night. And I was like, "Mm, uh, okay, later, dude. Uh, And then the second call and I was like, oh, and then you heard. And, uh, you know, turns out that Catherine and Graham had in secret been working behind the scenes for a couple of weeks, working all the angles. They found a group who was really working the angles, whose motto is every last one, who are trying to get folks onto the Star Cruiser um, as as cabins get canceled and, and, and all the sort of shenanigans are going on. And they had connected with Julie Ray Goldstein who had it in with that group. And that's how, that's how Julie Ray got on the star cruiser, literally the, the, the trip before ours and, and through these connections, uh, had secured us a birth, but it went beyond that. Um, so, you know, uh, I mentioned Alex Kalum, uh, who has, who, who had also reached out on the day and said, Hey, we've got to find a way to get you on there. Um, whatever Agile Lens can do. And so you're going to see um, some some material we make uh, in, the, in the weeks ahead about this trip, uh, not as a way of celebrating, oh boy, Noah got to go on Star Cruiser, because that's not what it's about. Like the, the, there's, there's a part of it that's like you know, Noah's vacation and Noah's dream come true. And then there's another part of it that is needing to go to understand what it was that was done in order to preserve that knowledge for the future generations. And yes, lots of people have gone, but like for our community and and to digest it the way we did, and oh boy, did we digest it. And you're going to hear a lot more of us digesting it in the future because the people that we went with, uh, 
uh, Nick Fortuno and Jessica Crean and Graham and Catherine and myself, right? Like we're all deep in this world and we, we stayed up to three in the morning on the last day analyzing what we had seen. And there's, there's plenty of material coming out of that. And that material is going to be sponsored by Agile Lens. Uh, so, but, but they're not the only folks who, who contributed, right? So like, you know, Graham picked up uh, you know, the star crews are part of the tab. Uh, Agile lens has helped cover with the travel. Um, and then Catherine rallied all these people and I'm going to read the names, Jesse Damiani, David and Lisa Spira, Parker Sella, the associate producer of this podcast. You just heard Matt Bamberg, Johnson, Tommy Haunton, Ricky Briganti, Rachel Stoll, Leah Abelson, Brian Resler, Zay Amsbury, our, our original New York cur- curator, Michael Anderson of, of ARGN, of course, oh, David and Lisa, of course, are our room escape artist. I, I should, I, I'm giving shouts. Uh, Michaela Ternesky Holland and Anthony Robinson, you know, one of my best friends in the world uh, who, who couldn't get away, who I, I really wanted to, to have come through. Um, and uh, Michael and Jen uh, Davis Wilson, um, my other best friends in the world um, who for some reason in my little list here uh, were not on my little typed out list, which is really bad. Um, and I'm getting weepy again because I didn't know this was possible. I don't mean like, Oh, finding a spot. And blah, blah. I didn't, I didn't know that you could get all these people to like, create a conspiracy of joy and, 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 and make something like this possible. I'm constantly, and, and I, I, I feel the, I feel the weight of it sometimes. And I was so nervous that something would go wrong, that travel would go wrong and that all these people had pledged in and paid money and, and all this effort was, was done. Uh, and that we wouldn't, it wouldn't happen. A hurricane would come or something. Uh, and we just had the most magical time. And at least getting there was everything worked. Um, you know, Graham, Catherine and myself, uh, we, we found a, a, a space in the double tree at Disney Springs the night before. So we wouldn't be late uh, because we we're coming from the West Coast. Uh, Nick and Jessica came down, you know, cause from the East coast, they came down on the morning of, and literally their, their car arrived right after ours did for check-in. They were the next people to arrive. And it was just that way. Um, there's, there's all sorts of stories and, and I, I feel many a way about the experience overwhelmingly good with, with a touch of bittersweet in that. I really wish all of you who are listening to this right now could experience it. Um, but it is closing at the end of September, uh, in, unless somehow they have some giant reversal, but pretty sure that it's going the way of like Star Trek prodigy and all of those cartoons on, on max and, and everything else just getting shelved as a tax write off. Um, and I feel a lot of ways about that. And there's a whole op-ed that I dropped last week that I raced to write while I was packing, which is about the close of the burnt city and the close of star cruiser and, and, and 
the cycle of culture and what it all means. But I, I do wish that, well, because not everyone's going to get to experience it, I hope we still fire. I hope that a Promethean effort is made to take what is known, to take the knowledge, to take the techniques, to take the proof that it worked and expand that out to more and more people. Because I'll tell you, a lot of what I experienced there, I know, I know that creators in our community could could recreate, not necessarily at the level of, you know, pouring concrete and building an entire, you know, star cruiser set, but on the level of the interactions and the level of the complexity of, of tracking choices, that stuff, I know that our community can pull it off because it's our community that did it. It's our people who worked behind the scenes and they became friends and colleagues with the other people who weren't part of our community and then thus those people become part of our community. We have the tools, the talent, and the knowledge. This isn't a rescue mission anymore. This is a heist and we're stealing this. We're stealing these ways for our people and sharing it with the world. More on that in the years to come but I have conviction on that front. Um, that's, that's the early top line impression. <laughs> this is so valuable. We must steal it. Uh, and so we shall. Uh, and on that note, after going on for so long, um, and, and sort of being put back on my heels again into my feels, uh, I'm going to leave you this week. I hope you have an excellent weekend, particularly those who are getting extra time off for the 4th of July uh, here in the States. Uh, we will be back next week with uh, yet another episode, and there's even more coming soon, and there just will be more on Star Cruiser. We have something very special uh, on the books as a recording, uh, and I'm looking forward to it greatly because my heart is still in the stars. Let's do this. The associate producer of this program, uh, who is also your host this week, is Parker Sella. Music for No Persinium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society and Solar the Podcast. Special thanks to Shimano Lachlan for voicing our intro. This podcast is written, edited, usually hosted, uh, produced and mixed by yours truly. I'm Noah Nelson, the luckiest boy in the world. And until next time, I'll see you in the stars. 